Good morning, friends. Uh, hello, everybody. Hello, Lou. Hello. Hello, doctor. I am um, looking forward to today's uh, session. I think we spoke last week about uh, how many people across the world have benefited from the teachings of the Gita yes. and the Vedanta and Upanishads. And I promised you today that we were going to continue with some of the basics that we must know before we can actually get into a study of the Gita. I told you that this is not a religious text. Um, many people get scared when they think of anybody talking about religion. And this is more of a way of living life uh, and dealing with other human beings, ourselves, uh, our emotions, and the world around us. Um, I can tell you myself that I myself have benefited tremendously from it. Others, my patients, my friends, my family members have also benefited from it, from whatever I could tell them. I am yet a kindergartner in <laughs> these studies. Um, I, the person who actually introduced me to this uh, was uh, Sri Gautam Jain, who is a student of Swami Parthasarthi. And it was my wife, Lalita, who introduced me to Gautam Jain because she had gone to a temple, as I said, heard him the first time, came back, told me about it, and said, for my sake, go at least once. If you don't like it, don't go again. And I said, all right, I'll go. <laughs> and I went, and it's changed my life. And I'm hoping that I can transfer some of that to the rest of you, whoever listens. So the first thing today, uh, this session is entitled the basics that you must know about. Most of you might know this already, but I think that before we go any further, the Gita is very careful about telling us how to lead our lives. And in order to lead our life, we must know what we are. So you buy a car, you buy a VCR, you buy a um, anything, a TV, you, it comes with a manual, an instruction manual. Yet, when you are born, your children are born, doesn't come with a manual. So you have no idea yeah. what you're doing. It's learn as you go. It's learn as you go, and yeah. most of us don't know. So the ancients used to say that when you're born, you're born basically like an animal. It's only when you get to be about 10, 11, 12, whatever time your intellect starts to be properly trained is when you become a real human being. Mm -hmm. And that point was celebrated in cultures across the world as a turning point where you become a real human being. It was known in, in, in India, the Hindus celebrated by wearing then a thread, and it's known as a Janeo ceremony. Um, uh, it's known also celebrated as bar mitzvah or the born again phenomenon or bat mitzvah or various other things in various religions and cultures. Mm -hmm. Now, what, what has happened at that time? What happens? So we understand, and you, most of you might know this, but there's at least two things that I'm going to tell you right now that many of you, most of you, don't know. So the Gita basically teaches us that we are composed of body and matter. Uh, sorry, body and spirit, or mm -hmm. spirit and matter. So we, as a body, have a few things inside the body, which is our five senses. We all know about those five senses, right? Eyes for sight, nose for smell, ears, taste, and touch, mm -hmm. skin for touch. Correspondingly, nature has made sense objects on the outside. 
which when the sense objects come in contact with, there's pleasure or displeasure. Mm -hmm. So those are the five sense objects. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that to say um, what exactly they do. But understand that when a sense object comes in contact with a sense organ, there is an immediate pleasure. The tongue comes across something sweet. Right. It says, wow, that's mm -hmm. amazing. The smell nose, you smell something that's really nice, right. so, and, and you says this is great. You listen to some great music, you love it. The more sense organs that are titillated at the same time, the more the pleasure. Interesting. So if I'm to listen to some nice music with my eyes closed, you get a pleasure from it. This is great. Right. When I'm looking at something without any sound, this is great. But if you combine the two together, if you're listening to a song, <coughs> excuse me, if you're listening to some music on the radio, it gives you one kind of pleasure. Same music on a TV screen where it's a music video gives right. you double the pleasure because you're seeing something and you're listening. So the more sense organs and sense or objects that come together at any given time, the more the pleasure the body and the mind gets. Makes sense. In the scriptures, the Gita, Vedanta, don't forget, these were written thousands of years ago. They said that they symbolized woman as the maximum number of senses that are being titillated, stimulated at the same time. Mm -hmm. They said that all five senses are stimulated at the same time, including one's mind. Right. And that starts at a very young age. When the child is a baby, the mother is a woman. True. And so the child has the sense of taste, which mm -hmm. is the milk that he gets from right. his mother, the sense of smell, the, the he smells his mother, right. he hears his mother cooing to him, talking gently to him, he right. touches his mother's skin. All of the senses, plus the thought that as the mother is caressing him, her, the baby is just in heaven. Right. So all five senses are being affected by woman, and this continues throughout one's life, where a woman and in case of a woman, a man represents all five senses being stimulated at the same time, plus the mind, if you're really interested in what this person sure. has. So all six senses. Those are the sense objects, I think, sense organs and sense objects that I think most of us already know. What I didn't know is that the ancients in the scriptures talked about five organs of action. That we did, I didn't know. Organs of action. Yeah, most people don't know this. Right. So you say, what are the organs of action that our body has? And this is very, very important in as we go forward with our life. This is why these basics are very important to know. Five organs of action are hands and arms mm -hmm. to reach out and hold something. Sure. Legs to ambulate, to walk. Right. Um, organs of excretion, mm -hmm. urination and defecation. Mm -hmm. uh, the voice box to speak. Yes. That's an organ of action because you're acting by right. talking, shouting, saying something to somebody. And the last one, the fifth one, is organs of reproduction. Okay. So imagine that one is a baby, a child. You have a child. You look at the child. Initially, all it does is when it is um, hungry or cold or the diaper's wet, it uses its voice box right. to just scream right. and shout. And the mother comes and says, what's wrong, what's wrong? It opens the diaper, changes it. When the child is able to be a little bit older, first action is his hands, 
reaches out, touches anything to his mouth. Yeah. Takes it, puts it to his mouth. Everything, everything. goes in the mouth. <laughs> because that is the sense right. organ that he knows of at the time or she knows of. Says everything he looks to right. taste it. He doesn't know that a block of wood doesn't taste good, but puts it yeah. to his mouth. So the first organ of action, second of organ action, which is the voice box calling for his mother. Second is his arms. Third is his legs. Mm -hmm. And he starts to crawl. Right. He says, well, listen, if my mother won't come to me, if that <laughs> wooden block won't come to me, I'm going to go to it. Right. So he starts crawling towards anything that looks attractive, picks it up, puts it in his More mouth. More things to put in my mouth. Right. <laughs> yeah. And so it's the legs that carry him to someplace else. So that's the third organ of action. Then his voice box starts to learn how to speak. Right. Mom, milk, water you know, pacifier, whatever right. it is that he starts asking for. Now he learns to train his voice box to c ask for things that his sense organs right. are looking for. And it's communicative as opposed to s stimulus. Right. Just, yeah. So, and the fourth one is organs of excretion. Now he starts, you know, he's urinating in his diaper, he's defecating in his diaper, mom comes and changes it, but yep. after a certain point, the mom says, listen, we've got to train you, can't do this here, you've got to go to the bathroom. Right. So he learns to control that. So he's now learned to control his fourth organ of action. Organs of reproduction are not yet mature at this stage. Mm -hmm. He cannot do anything, neither can the little baby girl. Those come after right. adolescence and puberty. So... Those are connected very much with the mind and the intellect, and I'll get to that. Right. So the next thing after the body, the body, uh, now we spoke about the five organs of action, five organs of uh, sensory organs. Mm -hmm. After that comes the mind. Now, the mind is really the villain in this story. Really? The mind is the villain. Yeah. The mind, all it does is ask for things. It asks, I, all it does is, I want, I want, I want. It says, I'm afraid of this. I love this. I dislike this. I don't like this. I, I like want this. or I, I don't want? I don't want this. Yep. I want this. Right. And in Sanskrit, that's known as raga and dvesha. Want and diswant. No, oh, okay. Raga and dvesha. Those words come up a lot. Um the emotions, desires, constantly demanding. It is the mind is insatiable. Mm -hmm. So the mind is compared. All of these things are symbolically represented by the ancient Sanskrit scriptures. So the mind is represented as fire because fire is insatiable. Okay, yes. Right? You just imagine that there's a fire. You say, okay, listen, I'm, you must be hungry. Here's some wood. Right. The wood gets burnt. A fire says, I'm still burning. Give me more. Right. And, and as long as you keep feeding it, it keeps asking for more. It's only when you stop feeding it anything to burn, it's the fire dies away. Right. Same thing with the mind. It is oblivious. The mind is oblivious to consequences. Mm -hmm. It doesn't think twice. It says, I want this. I want to do it. And the heck with you. Right. Above that really is the intellect. Right. Now, the intellect is not something that we have when we are born. It is trained over the first five, ten years of one's life. And that's when, when the intellect gets to be in complete command of the mind and the body is when one is thought to be a human being. Mm -hmm. The second birth, the janeo, right. the bar mitzvah, the bat mitzvah, and in Christianity it is something else. 
yeah. where the person becomes a person now you say okay now i'm celebrating that you're now your intellect has completely grown how does that intellect gets born uh, uh, stimulated throughout the child's life one is hoping and assuming that he has elders mother father grandparents school church temple mosque right where he is trained to say this is good this is not good you should do this you shouldn't do this this is right this is not right and as that right and wrong develops the intellect of the human being says okay now i know what i should be doing what i shouldn't be doing and we hope that it becomes a solid fixture in his mind right. and that that intellect then controls the mind and the body that's the important part when the intellect takes over control of of the uh, instinctual body right yeah so the in intellect is really the most powerful part of these three organs the right. intellect the mind and the brain the intellect should be saying to the mind uh uh you can't do that intellect saying to the body don't listen to the mind i know it says do this but you're not going to do it right. you're not going to do it that's an important part most of us have never been taught that we have a certain feature within us which is the intellect that should be saying don't do it do it this is right this is wrong right. we just go along with whatever the mind wants so um we're not taught that it's separate from the mind we're taught we, we think it's the same thing yes. we're often taught that it's the same thing you know in medical school there's no explanation of this whole concept so the, i was taught by gautam jain swami parthasarthi this is what they were taught by their studies of the scriptures that human being is the only species that has a fully formed intellect some other species might have some r remnants uh, or m uh, small episodes of um, uh, intellect but it's not really a fully developed right. intellect so what does that mean all other hum uh, animals are programmed to do what they have to do if a tiger sees a small little deer mother and child and the tiger jumps out from behind the jungle the mother re runs away looking at the baby to say come on follow but the tiger jumps on the baby mother runs away the tiger kills and eats the little doe mm -hmm. says i'm hungry i'm programmed to eat it right to feed my own children the fact that it's somebody else's baby that you're eating right in front of the mother doesn't concern the tiger yeah. there's no moral stimulus here but a human yeah. being has a gun lifts it to goes deer hunting aims it looks and sees the mother and the child the human being says eh i can shoot somebody else yeah let the deer go let the baby go i'm going to shoot some other deer or mm -hmm. not shoot the deer at all right. it's not my culture kind of thing mm -hmm. that intellectual right or wrong should be developed in all human beings and the whole one of the main purposes of the gita vedanta upanishads is to strengthen the intellect to get to that point right um so we talked about that oh reproduction mm -hmm. so then just around the time that we think the intellect is going to be developed which is around 10 11 12 <laughs> is when the <laughs> the curve gets thrown <laughs> the curveball gets thrown yeah and just at that time is when the reproductive organs start to act mm -hmm. up the girls go into menarche the boys start to get erections and start to find 
And now comes the intellect where it says, the mind is saying, wow, this I'm yeah. going to go this way. The body is saying, I'm going to go this way. And internally, we were going to This talk is like the master's thesis of developing your, your <laughs> intellect, right? <laughs> so there are inside us vasanas, which are no, is a Sanskrit word for desires, mm. drives. Yes. And those vasanas come to us and want us to do certain things. The intellect and the mind combines with the vasanas and says, ah, I know you, you're my old partner. Come on, let's do this. The vasanas may be for food, for sex, for money, mm -hmm. for power, for beauty, all the ones that we already know of that all of us, right. the world around, have. And each one has a separate one. Sure. Many have more than one vasanas. Somebody like um, Medov may just have a desire to accumulate right. lots and lots and lots of money and others have a vasna for dis beauty and, and uh, others have a yeah. desire for fame or for whatever. Which is why a Madoff will never say I have enough money because it's not about the amount of money, it's about the desire for it. For the, it's the yeah. vasna and the fulfillment. Yeah. It never gets fulfilled. It's again, the mind and the vasna together is like fire, insatiable. The Upanishads basically use the analogy of a chariot. Now, in today's day and age, we could use the analogy of a car. Mm -hmm. Where, but in those days, there were no cars. Right. They used the analogy of a chariot. And if I had a picture to draw, what I would draw is the chariot with a body. Inside it is the passenger. Right. In the Gita, it's Krishna. And the person driving the chariot is Krishna, who is the god in the uh, Gita. And Krishna is holding the reins of five horses of the chariot. Oh. So there's five horses. Interesting number. <laughs> five reins. Yeah. The intellect, which is Krishna, the chariot passenger, which is us, mm -hmm. and the chariot itself, which is the body. Right. So the analogy is that it's the five horses that are running forward, the senses always going around the world looking for sense organs right. that they can combine with, hungry for it. The reins is technically the mind, that when the mind, the reins are tight, the five organs are held tightly in check and says right. we can't go. But when the reins are loose, the horses can go anywhere. But who keeps the reins tight or lax? It's the intellect. Krishna. Krishna, which is the, the intellect. intellect. Yes. So the intellect basically keeps the reins, the mind in check, mm -hmm. holding the five organs in check, or the intellect is basically asleep at the wheel, the reins are loose, and the sense organs go wherever they want to, and right. the mind goes wherever it wants to. And the poor passenger, us, basically at the whims of the five horses, or the five sense organs. Yes. Very important analogy that we spoke about over here. So, um, what else did I, I made some notes for myself. Um, so the intellect we talked about. Now, intellect is very different from intelligence. Mm -hmm. Very, very different. Intelligence is merely an accumulation of information. We go to school, we get information. That's very different from intellect. Right. We get an external source telling us about um, of, of mathematics, physics, chemistry. Now in Sanskrit there are, it's gross intellect and subtle intellect. And the subtle intellect is also known in Sanskrit as sukshma buddhi. The subtle, the gross intellect is concerned with things terrestrial. 
physics, mathematics, okay. money, business, how to negotiate, that kind of stuff. If I go off this cliff, I'm going to get hurt. Right. Yeah. The subtle intellect, the sukshma buddhi, is concerned with things extraterrestrial, beyond, spiritual, mm -hmm. what we're talking about now. This is the development of the sukshma buddhi. Most of us don't stimulate it. We only think about the terrestrial things, business, money matters, right. negotiating. We don't really, haven't given much thought. Even religions basically says, go to a church, light a temple, pray. I hope I get this job. If I get this job, I'll come and give right. so much money to the church. That's like going in front of the ocean and saying, if you let me swim inside you, ocean, and I don't drown, this bucket of seawater that I have, I'm going to give it back to you. <laughs> Makes no sense. Yeah. If there were a God that is like an all-powerful human being to say, I'm going to give you five bananas or you know, fruit or a bucket yeah. full of money or gold or silver, makes no difference. It all belongs to that power. Right. So the sukshma buddhi is the one that we have to train to get to that point where it learns more than just what's terrestrial. Um, and the sukshma buddhi is what we also know as the conscience. So many times... So I was going to say, can we attach morality to this? Yes. Yeah. So it is the sukshma buddhi that basically says, I'm the one that's telling you, you do something wrong, even though the intellect, the gross intellect says, yeah, you did fine, you did fine, it right. was okay, it justifies it. Right. The sukshma buddhi says, eh, you didn't do it right. That was, you shouldn't have done that. That's not right. And that keeps pricking away at what we call the conscience. And that's the sukshma buddhi, you know. Right. And the more developed your intellect is, the more developed your sukshma buddhi is, the subtle intellect, the more it's going to keep bothering oneself. The gross intellect deals with consequences. The subtle intellect, even if there are no consequences to you, there's still a right or wrong. Yes. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. It's not concerned with the consequences of the world. It's more concerned about the yeah. ultimate consequence. The gross intellect will say nothing's going to bother you if you do that, but the subtle intellect says, but it's not right. Or, or the yeah. gross intellect is going to come with justification as to why this was okay to do. Right. So, all right. Now, most humans are caught up in the matter. There's a matter, which is what we talked about, mm -hmm. and there's a spirit. Because after all, what runs this body? What runs this mind? Right. What runs this intellect? If right now I have a heart attack and I drop dead, all of this is for naught. What happened when I dropped dead? So going back to the analogy of a instruction manual, imagine that this little toy that I just got from Radio Shack mm -hmm. has not working. I, it says needs two AA batteries. Yep. I take the AA batteries, I put them in, I turn it on and it starts working. What happened? it got started getting some kind of power, electricity, energy, whatever you call it, right. from those two AA batteries. What gives us that power, energy, electricity? What gives it to us is what, over the centuries, since the beginning of mind, is called a different name by different cultures, religions, and other things. Many of us recognize that what we have inside us, those AA batteries, that gives us energy, is called, you call it, divinity, yeah, soul, wood, yes. spirit, yeah. electricity, soul is life. used a lot, yes. Soul is used a lot, life is used a lot, mm -hmm. divinity is used a lot, spirit is used a lot. In Sanskrit and in the Gita and Upanishads, it is called Atma. A-T-M-A or A-A-T-M-A, Atma. Atma. 
or Atman. And that Atma is basically the energy. Now, the battery, the AA batteries in my toy after a while die. Mm -hmm. What do I do? If it's a rechargeable battery, I take it out, I plug into a larger source of electricity or energy, right. like a battery charger or electricity, plug it into the wall, gets recharged, I put it back in the thing. So the there's a larger source of energy and a smaller source in the AA battery. Same thing with us. Mm. Our Atma is a small part of divinity when the larger part is elsewhere. Because after all, you say to yourself, well, this is a small piece of energy within this small individual here. Right. What about that elephant there? What about that uh, big, you know, whatever that has life in it? Tree, oak tree, whatever. Everything that moves has life is what we are taught. Right. Everything. So that means that there is energy, the same energy that is in us is elsewhere too, a larger source, and that's really where we would be charging it. So we all... Is this larger source distributed among living beings, or is there a separate source somewhere? So there is an unending supply of this larger force. It's not just, you know, it's not a, like a pie that you cut yeah. it into, say, okay, this right. much for this mosquito, which has life in it, this much for this elephant, bigger life. It's unending, it's everywhere, it's immovable. Mm -hmm. The thing about it is that when we've all seen that various cultures and religions say that when we die, we go to meet our maker. Right. So essentially that Atman then joins up with this larger field, which is known as Brahman. Now Brahman with a M-A-N at the end is the term that in Sanskrit and Gita Vedanta is used for the force outside. It is different from Brahmin, which is M-I-N, which is the term that I talked about right. when I talked about Blake and the Boston Brahmins. Brahmin is a person that is serene, equitable, mm -hmm. uh, etc. And Brahma is a name of a god that is concerned with um, birth and generation. Right. So the Brahma, source of Brahmin energy is different. Bra Brahman is life, nature, uh, conscience, consciousness, and source of our spirit. Um, sorry. No. It's funny you bring up consciousness because my personal pet theory is collective consciousness. I, I okay. believe in collective consciousness. Right. Yeah. So, so we will be talking about yeah. that. So... Um, the other thing that we have to know is that we can source and we can pursue two different aspects of our life. Basically, one is to say, you know what, I, I don't want to pursue this. I'd rather be going where my five horses, my five sense organs, and my mind takes me. Because after all, if I just keep eating donuts, which right. I love, if I keep eating food, which I love, if I keep drinking, I love it. This is great. I can pursue that. The consequences, as one goes on through life, are very negative and poor. Yes. Because the more you indulge, we've seen this, right? Mm -hmm. Epstein, that just committed yes. suicide, he indulged in whatever his vasanas and his mind was telling him to do. Right. And where did he end up? Big trouble. He may have made a lot of money, but he ruined right. a lot of lives, and in the end, his life was ruined. We can give you countless examples of when you pursue that, it ends up in trouble, most of the time.
all the time. And we can include this is wants and not wants because if you avoid things that you need because you don't want to indulge in them, that can lead that lead that leads to consequences as well. So you have the desire to do something and you say, no, it's not the right thing. I'm going to pull back. I'm going to do what is right. My right. intellect tells me this is not right. I'm going to do what is right. You pursue what is right and the immediate effect is displeasure. Right. But the long-term effect is pleasure. So as Gautam Jain or Swami Parthasarthi would say, if you're given a choice of two roads and you can see the two roads from here to the next 15 feet, and it says one is rough and all filled with stones and gravel, and the other is smooth and nice, which one would you pick? The most people would say, well, I'll pick the one that's smooth and paved. Right. But what they should be saying is, well, what happens after the 15 feet that <laughs> exactly. I can't see? Yes. Well, after 15 feet that you can't see, good question, the one that is rocky and pebbly turns into a nice smooth paved road and this one has all thorns and stones on it for the rest of eternity yes so basically what what you're saying is if you lead a life that says i've got to take care of my body because my body is my chariot mm -hmm. i need to take care of it i need to exercise i need to eat good food right. i need to have nutritious food no junk or garbage and i need to lead my life in the proper way because that donut is the first 15 feet of the road. That's right. That you have to see beyond the donut. Correct. So yep. if I do that, it may be displeasurable in the beginning, but as I continue it, my act, my body actually says, hey, you know what? I love that exercise. I mm -hmm. miss it when I don't do it. Right. I feel good when I'm eating healthy, and I feel good that I'm not doing things that are against my sukshma buddhi or my conscience. Right. So you tend to, if it's difficult path to follow, but if you continue that, it actually becomes a, a, a habit, and you lead that, and it becomes the end of uh, the ultimate goal, which is a good one. So I'm going to pause here and uh, see, Lou, do you have any questions about this so far? No, it's, it's funny, as I learn about all these things, and we're talking about the Gita now, it's, it's all the principles in a lot of these modalities are very similar. Yes. And it's a matter of phrasing, and it's it's a matter of... Expand on that. What do you mean they're similar? Similar to what? Uh, they all have the same principles. For example, I've been on a mindfulness journey for a while, and one of the things about that is understanding that your consciousness and your brain are two different things, that your th emotions are not who you are, that you can step back from them. There's a separate piece there. And about uh, just also, it, all the principles are the same. We just phrase it differently. Gita obviously has... Uh, has names for desires and dislikes, but uh, all the principles seem to be the same. It's about understanding that there's a you beyond your body's desires. Right. So that's what I would like people to recognize and then go back to the uh, session that we had last time, talk about, listen to all the famous people that whose life these things changed. Because this is just what I'm talking today. That was session 10. Session yes. 10, was yes. it? Okay, thanks. I also find it's interesting, one point you brought up about when you were comparing, like when we go to a church to pray or light a candle or something like that for what it is that we're trying to see come to be, that's kind of giving up control. And these principles are taking control. It's, mm -hmm. it's in you. It's in your mind. Right. It's, it's in right. your intellect. And it's also teaching us that really not only will it not work, 
if you just light a candle yeah. and you have join your hands together and say, please, God, do this for me, there is nobody that says the charioteer is you. Mm-hmm. You're the one that has to do it. If you want something done, you've got to make the efforts to get it done. Do it in the right way, and you have better chances of it getting done than just standing there and holding your hands together and right. asking for God to do it for you. I love the chariot analogy with the five horses. I right. like that a lot. All right, so that's it, and we'll follow up next time with some more of this. Hope you join us, and thank you so much for being there. 